Do you love Jesus? Now, you might find it easy to answer that question in the affirmative. When you're in church, the preacher's the one that's asking the question. You're surrounded by folks that agree with you and affirm your love for Christ. In this context, it, it's, it's easy for us to say, yes, I love Jesus. But what if your declaration of love for Jesus and your allegiance to Him cost you your job? Or cause you to miss that promotion? Or cause your family to turn its back on you? What if your declaration of love for Jesus caused you to lose some of your closest relationships? What if your love for Jesus cost you dearly? Then would you be able to answer that question in the affirmative? Yes, I love Jesus. We're going to study a message that Jesus had for a church in first century Asia Minor in the city of Smyrna. And his message was meant to prepare them for coming persecution and for hardship they were already enduring. And as I was thinking about this message, I, I thought about the connection with the church in Ephesus. The, the first message was to the church in Ephesus. We studied that a few weeks ago. And in that message, Jesus said to the church, You've lost your first love. So remember from where you've fallen, repent and return to me. Resume loving me preeminently. Now, you so say, how is that message related to the message of persecution to the church in Smyrna? Well, here's the thought I had. If we heed the message of Jesus to the church in Ephesus, we're going to need the message of Jesus to the church in Smyrna. Because if you really start to love Jesus preeminently, it's going to cost you something. Ralph Waldo Emerson was quoted as saying, For nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure. And when you start to really love Jesus, there will be consequences. So if you heed the message of Jesus to Ephesus, love Jesus first and foremost, you're going to need this message to the church in Smyrna to prepare yourself for the backlash, to prepare yourself for the cost. And we'll see that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. So turn, turn there with me as we continue our summer sermon series. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 8, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, truth with no mixture of error. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your presence here today. We're so grateful for the indwelling Spirit who opens the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of Scripture and we might apply those truths and and live according to those truths. Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to fill up our lives. We ask you to fill up this room with with your tangible presence that we might be transformed, that we might leave today knowing we have encountered the living God. Would you do that? We, we declare our need for you. And so, Lord, have your way in our midst for the glory and fame of your name. Establish my steps in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we begin this summer sermon series, we saw that John was one of the disciples of Christ, one of the apostles. And because of his preaching of the gospel, he was sent into exile, into prison on an island called Patmos. And during his time on that Isle of Patmos, Jesus appeared to him in a vision and gave him a series of messages. Many of the messages deal with end times scenarios, but these messages begin with some specific words to specific churches scattered throughout first century Asia Minor. And so, John wrote these messages down, and, and no doubt these messages were distributed through these seven churches. They would hear what Jesus was saying to their church. And here it says in verse 8 that he was writing to the angel, I believe that speaks of the pastor, the word could be translated messenger, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, right? Now, Smyrna was an interesting city about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It was on the Gulf. Uh, in, into which the Hermas River flowed. So it was a major uh, trade center because a, a major river flowed into the Gulf right in, in that area. The population was estimated somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people. It was a beautiful city. It boasted a famous stadium, a library, and a public theater. It was a very religious city. There were monuments everywhere to different gods, temples to different gods, including a temple to Caesar worship that proclaimed that Caesar, the Roman emperor, was divine and was uh, Lord. There were some coins found from this time that described Smyrna as the first of Asian beauty and size. This was a major city, and there was a church here. There were some believers in Christ that were gathering together and experiencing some some hardship. And so Jesus has a message for this church in Smyrna as to how they are to face and walk through that hardship. And so as we look at this message of Smyrna, we see application to our church. This is a message to the church, a message to Longview Point Baptist Church. And we see some application into all of our lives. And so here's what we're going to see. We're going to see how we suffer hardship for our faith. 
what we need to remember when we encounter hardship because of our faith in Christ. Three things you need to, to, need to remember. Number one, we need to remember that Jesus is. We need to remember who Jesus is. The Bible says here that Jesus, first of all, is the first, the protos, and the last, the eschatos, the first and the last. Look what it says in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Jesus is introducing himself here, the first and the last. Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. Other places he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the, the same idea. The fact that Jesus is the first speaks of his preexistence. Before there was ever a planet Earth, before there was ever a Milky Way galaxy, before there were ever stars in the heavens, Jesus was there. Jesus Christ has always existed. There's never been a time when Jesus Christ has not existed. He's the first. He, he pre-existed the created order, and he's the last. When all is said and done, and the dust settles on human history, guess who will be there still reigning on his throne? Jesus will be there. He's the first and the last. This speaks of his deity. He's using this title to speak of the fact that he is divine. He, he's reminding the church in Smyrna, the one addressing you is God himself. I like what James Hamilton writes about this phrase, the first and the last. He writes, in this case, Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. There is depth here that cannot be plumbed. Think as far back as your mind can go. And Jesus was there before all that. He is the first before all else that is. He cannot be preempted. Be careful because thinking about him as the first and the last will tax your mental capacity to the breaking point. Jesus is bigger than our ability to understand. Don't you like that? Jesus is bigger than our ability to understand. He also is the last. Nothing will endure longer than Jesus. He is before and after everything. By identifying himself in this way as the first and the last, Jesus is explicitly claiming divinity. When he calls himself the first and the last, he's, he's, he's tying his identity into Old Testament passages like Isaiah 44, verse 6. Listen to this verse. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Listen, and there is no God besides me. So that phrase, the first and the last, is tied to the fact that God is God and there is no other. So when Jesus says, I'm the first and the last to the church in Smyrna, he's saying, I am God. I'm addressing you as God. So Jesus is the first and the last. We need to remember that when we go through hardship, any kind of hardship, we need to remember that Jesus Christ has it all covered. He was there before human history. He'll be there after human history. Jesus has it all in his hands. Can I get an amen? You need to remember that when you go through hardship. Secondly, not only is Jesus the first and the last, Jesus is the crucified and risen Savior. Look what he says in verse 8. The first and the last, as he introduces himself, who was dead and has come to life. I love that. Who was dead, that speaks of the cross, Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, early on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. This speaks of his victory. He's reminding them, I died on the cross. I defeated sin. I defeated Satan. And then they buried me and I rose from the dead. I even defeated death. I'm the victorious 
conqueror. That's who's talking to you. And so you're going through tough times. You're encountering difficulty. But remember that Jesus Christ has already won. He's the first and the last. The one who was dead and has come to life. When we go through difficult times, we need to remember that Jesus is God. He is in control. He is a victorious king. Secondly, not only do we need to remember that Jesus is, we need to remember that Jesus knows. Jesus knows some things about your life and my life. First of all, Jesus knows our hardships. Look what the Bible says in verse 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation carries with it the idea of pressure. You're going through pressure for believing in Christ, for following Christ, and I know your tribulation. I know what you are going through. I know your hardships. Listen to me. There's nothing we go through that Jesus is not aware of. And, and Jesus always has us in his hands. He's saying, listen, I know you're struggling. You see, a lot of times when people struggle, when they're hurting, when they're going through difficulty, they think that God's forgotten about them, don't they? They, they think that God has turned their back on them. They think that, that they're just going through this thing alone. And Jesus is reminding the church this morning, you're not going through it alone. I, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. The, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is watching what's happening. I know your tribulation. But not only does he know that, he knows our situation. He speaks here to the church of Smyrna of their specific situation. The, the, the things they were encountering in the city of Smyrna. Look what he says in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Why does he mention their poverty? He says, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. These believers in Christ in Smyrna probably had suffered a loss of their possessions, perhaps a loss of land or homes. Perhaps people had lost their jobs because of their uh, because of the persecution for their stance for Christ. And she said, I know that you're going through poverty. I know that you've lost some earthly goods because you're following Christ. Now, here's the question. Why were the Christians in Smyrna being persecuted? Why were their earthly goods, earthly possessions being taken away from them? Well, here's what you need to understand. In the first century, the Roman emperor was considered a god. As a matter of fact, a good Roman citizen had to call Caesar Lord. That was part of being a Roman citizen. If you went to different cities, there were, there were temples built for Caesar worship, declaring him as a god. Well, the first century Jews had an exemption. They did not have to call Caesar Lord. The, the Romans understood their, their statement of faith, the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here, Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, the Lord is one God. And, and because they were monotheistic, the Romans gave them an exemption, probably to keep the peace. They didn't want the Jews to, 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 to rise up and cause a disturbance in the area in which they lived. And so they gave them an exemption. They did not have to call Caesar Lord. Now, early on, as Christianity began to spread through the Roman Empire, Christians were covered by this exemption because the Romans saw them as just an extension of Judaism. They're, they're, just, they're Jewish, and so uh, many of the first followers were Jews, so they don't have to call Caesar Lord. They were exempted from doing that. Well, soon, the Jews wanted to distance themselves from the Christians, from those who followed Christ. And so they began to, to accuse them of false things. Notice there in verse 90, he says, 
they were blaspheming. He mentions their blasphemy. And they were trying to accuse the Christians of crimes as they sought to differentiate themselves from the followers of Christ. And persecution followed as members of this new movement refused to worship Caesar. And so when the Jews said, no, they're not, they're not Jewish. They, they've gone a new direction. They're a new religion, a new cult, a new sect, or whatever they called it. And so the Romans said, okay, since you're a new religion, you've got to say Caesar is Lord. And when the Christians said, we can't do that, Jesus is Lord, persecution came knocking at their door. That, that's what's happening here in the city of Smyrna. Now, notice Jesus uses the striking phrase, synagogue of Satan. So these who call themselves, uh, say they're Jews, but they're not. Now, he's not saying they weren't ethnic Jews. What he's saying here is that they were not true children of God. See, see many in, in, in Judaism thought, if I do all the external religious things, then I'm a child of God. But, but Jesus said, no, that's not the case. You're not a child of God because you do outward external things. You've got to have a heart change. You've got to be converted. You've got to be saved. You've got to be born again. And that only happens through Jesus. Listen to what Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. He writes, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, who's been transformed on the inside, one who's been converted. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So he's saying just because you call yourself a Jew and follow the law doesn't mean you're a child of God. They thought they were children of God because of their religious works. But Jesus is saying they're not true Jews. They've never been circumcised in the heart. Only those who name the name of Christ have been inner, in, inwardly transformed and are my children. You see, Jesus uses the striking phrase, synagogue of Satan, and, and what he's saying is this, they think they're God's people, but their father was really Satan because they had rejected Christ. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. There is a, a, a troubling view that has infiltrated our culture and infiltrated our society and is even infiltrating many churches. And it says, if you have faith in, in God, whatever your religion, whatever your, whatever your background, if you just have faith in God, you're a child of God. Matter of fact, you hear people say, we're all children of God. Jew, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, we're, we're all just children of God. That could not be further from the truth. The Bible says there's only one way that God becomes your father. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. If someone does not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, their father is not God, their father is the devil. Read John chapter 8. Jesus tells the Jewish religious leaders, you are of the, your father the devil. That's strong language. Well, we need to understand that if we're not in Christ, God is not our Father. We're not His children. And Jesus is saying, listen, they think they're my children, but they're not. They're, they're a synagogue of Satan because they've not embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. And so because the, the Jews had accused them of false things, the Romans were persecuting these Christians. Warren Wearsby writes, the church at Smyrna was not having an easy time of it. The members were persecuted probably because they refused to compromise and say Caesar is Lord. Smyrna was an important center of the Roman imperial cult, and anyone refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord 
would certainly be excluded from the guilds. This would mean unemployment and poverty. The word used here for poverty means abject poverty, possessing absolutely nothing. And so here's what Jesus is saying. I know that you've lost everything because you're following me. I know your specific situation. I know what you're going through. Now, apparently, Jewish persecution of Christians, even though many of the Christians had Jewish ethnicity and background, continued on for some time in Smyrna. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting story that took place around A.D. 155 about a church leader, the Bishop of Smyrna, and his name was Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was martyred, killed, for his refusal to deny Jesus and say, Caesar is Lord. His followers tried to get him out to the countryside to hide from the authorities, but they tracked him down, they, they caught Polycarp, and they brought him into an arena in Smyrna uh, before all the people, before the authorities, to see if he would recant from following Jesus as Lord. And history records, not the Bible, but history records, that as Polycarp walked into the arena, he heard an audible voice from heaven that said this, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. God was saying to him, be a man. And history records that others heard that same voice. So Polycarp goes into the arena. He's commanded to recant, and here's what he says. Eighty-six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Isn't that good? Well, he was sentenced to die. They burned him at the stake. And history tells us that the Jews in that area were the ones who went and gathered the wood. It was on the Sabbath day. They, they would not carry the wood on the Sabbath day normally, but to kill Polycarp, they did. And these Jews, who were not children of God, who were not followers of Christ, brought the wood, and Polycarp was burned alive. And so, this persecution that the church was experiencing in the first century went on into the second century as well. And Jesus is saying, I know your situation. I know what you're going through for following me. And then third, Jesus knows our future. Look in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So he's saying there's, there's some more suffering coming. There's a wave of, of new persecution, more intense persecution headed your direction. Look what he says. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So Jesus is very specific here. You're going to be cast into prison some for about 10 days. Now, scholars debate, is, is that a literal number or a figurative number? Some people think it just means a length of time. Some people believe it means a literal 10 days. But the case is this, Jesus knew what they were about to experience. And he even knew that some of them would die. Look what he says in the next verse, or the last part of that verse. Be faithful unto death. Some of you will die for your stand for me. He knows what's coming. Now, here's the application for all of us in this room. I want you to hear me carefully. Jesus knows what his church is going through today and what it will go through in the future. Now, as I look at the, the landscape of our, of our nation, of our society, I see troubling times headed this direction. I, I don't know the future. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know that our religious liberty is under serious assault. And we are losing ground daily. 
And so I don't know what it's going to look like, but I believe with all my heart that persecution is coming to the church of Jesus Christ here in the United States sooner rather than later. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know the trajectory of things, but I do know that Jesus knows. He knows what's coming. And listen to me. He'll give us what we need when we need it. He'll help us through those times if we'll stay faithful to him. So wait, how do you know persecution is coming? Well, listen, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Jesus said, or Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you heed the message of Jesus to Ephesus, if you start to love him, hardships come in your direction. Listen to me. You cannot love Jesus preeminently without it costing you something in our society. Not going to happen. John 15, 8, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what Jesus says. If you begin to live like Jesus and look like Jesus, you'd experience the same persecution that Jesus encountered. It's coming. And so we need to be ready as our culture changes rapidly. I heard a quote the other day from Albert Moeller. He's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said this about being a Southern Baptist. You know, our church is a Southern Baptist church. He said, in today's culture, you don't gain social capital by joining an SBC church. You lose it. Now, that's different than it used to be. I've heard many... Uh, folks uh, that lived in the middle part of the uh, 20th century talk about the glory days where it was popular to be a church-going citizen. I mean, you were respected for going to church, taking your family to church. I mean, it's just like, a, it was a good thing. You're in the Bible Belt, you go to church with your family. And, and you were seen as a respected member of society because you were part of a church. Now, that's changed. Now, when you identify, listen, with a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus-exclusive church, people are going to scoff at you. And they're going to laugh at you and call you simple-minded and ignorant and out-of-date and behind the times. That's coming. It's happening already. So I think what's going to happen is people are going to have to decide, am I willing to identify with a church that preaches the Bible? and endure the, 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 the scoffing that's sure to come my direction. It's happening rapidly in our society. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And I know Jesus knows what's coming. So we don't have to worry if we'll have what we need when we need it. One of my favorite stories is found in Acts chapter 7. It's where Stephen is preaching to the Jewish religious leaders. He's preaching about Jesus, and they're infuriated. If you remember, they pick up stones to stone him. They begin to stone Stephen while he's preaching. And, and just before he dies, he says, I look up into heaven, and I see Jesus, listen, standing. Now, you know what the Bible says. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and then ascended back to the Father, Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of his Father. The, the sitting down... Uh, spoke of his finished work. Jesus did everything necessary to save us. He, he finished the work of redemption. So when he got to heaven, he sat down. The work was done. Amen? 
But when one of his followers was being martyred, what do we see Jesus doing? We see him standing up, taking notice, watching what his child is going through, watching what his follower is enduring. I don't know what the hardship's going to look like for me and for you in the coming days, but here's what I know. That if we go through hardship for the name of Jesus, he will be standing up taking notice. And that's a good thing. And so when we go through hard times for our faith, we need to remember Jesus is. We need to remember that Jesus knows. But third, we need to remember that Jesus says some things. Jesus says three things in this passage that we need to remember when we go through hard times. Number one, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, you are rich. I like that. Look what he says in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but, in parentheses in my Bible, but you are rich. Jesus is saying, I know that you've lost earthly, earthly goods. I know you've lost your homes and your land and your jobs and your livelihood and your prominence and your popularity and your reputation. You've lost so much. You, you're impoverished. You've lost everything. But guess what? You still have me. So even though from an earthly perspective you are impoverished, from a spiritual perspective you are rich. You are filthy rich. Can I tell you this? As I look across this room this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, I'm looking at some rich folks. I'm not talking about material goods. Who cares about material goods? Jesus said, you can have all the material goods in the world and be spiritually poor. Remember what Jesus said? He said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? You can't take your, you can't take your position and your possessions into eternity with you. But even if you have nothing on this earth to speak of, even if you're struggling to make ends meet, even if you lose things because you follow Christ, Jesus reminds us that in Him, we are rich. We have forgiveness, and no one can take that away from you. And we have hope, and, and no one can take that away from you. And we have peace, and no one can get at your peace. And we have purpose, and meaning, and fulfillment, and joy, and no one can take it away from you because it's found only in Christ. They can take your job. You can get fired. You can lose your land. But I want you to know this. In Christ, you're rich. Remember that. Let me give it to you in a formula. If you have everything, but don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have nothing, but you have Jesus, you have everything. Everything you need. Everything your heart could desire, a relationship with the God of the universe. So he says, first of all, you are rich. Remember your spiritual identity. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember the glory of salvation, which is so much greater than the things this world has to offer. Secondly, Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. Look in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, I, I, I toyed with the idea of preaching a Father's Day message. But as I studied this message to the church of Smyrna, I thought, what a great message for Father's Day. I mean, what does our society need? We need men who have courage, amen? We need 
men that have the fortitude to follow Jesus no matter the cost. It's what we need. This is a great Father's Day message. He says, do not fear. Trivia question. What's the most often repeated command in the Bible? Do not fear. I read one place that the, the command to not fear is found 365 times in the Bible, one for each day of the year. Do not fear. You're going through difficult times. There's a wave of persecution coming. Do not fear. Stay strong in Jesus. Let him give you the courage to keep on keeping on. Don't, listen, don't back away one step from following Christ. Don't back away from identifying yourself as a child of God. Stay strong. Follow Christ. Keep your eyes on him. Do not fear. It's a call for courage. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. And then third, Jesus says, be faithful unto death. Look what he says in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now that's sobering, is it not? Jesus tells church of Smyrna, you need to be prepared to die for me. Be faithful until death. Now, I want to just be honest with you about something I, I think about often as a pastor. And I, and I even thought about not sharing this, but I thought, you know, it would be good for our church to hear. Good for you to hear what's going on in kind of my mind and my heart and, and, and how I think about things going on in the life of our church. We go all over the world on short-term mission trips. North America, different nations, different continents. We go all over the world. And we go into some places where um, people that are sharing Christ are not welcome. We go in some places that are, to be frank with you, dangerous. And as, as a pastor, I just, I've just kind of ha- I just kind of been bracing myself for that day when we get a phone call saying, your mission team is in jail. Or someone's been harmed. They were sharing Christ in a marketplace and an angry mob threw things at them and they're in a hospital now. Or something serious like that. And, and, I, I, and we, 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 we try to be careful and wise and, and we work with folks that know what they're doing where we go. But it, it's a dangerous world. And people hate Jesus. And if they hate Jesus, we should not be surprised if they hate us as representatives of Christ. So I just want you to know, as a pastor, I'm kind of bracing myself for that day. We get that call where something has happened that's, that's difficult. And I know this is not an advertisement for going on a short-term mission trip. Some of you are going to call Stephan and say, take me off the list, all right? But it's just reality. And, and here's the question. Are you willing to take a risk for Jesus? That's what he's saying here. Are you willing to obey me? And be faithful to me, even if it's risky. Even if it's dangerous. I want you to know that the unreached people of the world live in hard-to-get-to places. Hard-to-reach places. They're unreached for a reason. And if we're going to reach them, we're going to have to go into some dangerous areas with the gospel. That's just the reality of it. Are we willing to take a risk for Jesus? what he's saying here. And they said, wait, now that doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just snap your fingers. Okay, wait, I'm willing to die for Jesus, all right? 
That, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I think there are some things we need to keep in mind to prepare us to get to this place. So let me give you three words to, to, to get you to the place where you're willing to risk for Jesus. Number one, prepare. Prepare yourself. Look what he says in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So Jesus is preparing them. There's a wave of persecution headed your direction. So get ready. Don't wait till it comes. Get ready now. Brace yourself is what he's saying for the persecution. Prepare. I believe we need to prepare ourselves to be strong when dangerous times come or intimidation comes or persecution comes. I love this quote from Craig Keener. Listen to what he writes carefully. He says, if we have not prepared ourselves and our congregations to die for Christ's name if necessary, we have not completed our responsibility of preparing disciples. And then he writes this. Like Daniel and his friends, we prepare best for more strenuous future tests by passing the ones we are given in the present. Think about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Before there was a fiery furnace, and before there was a lion's den, they had another test. You remember what happened in Daniel chapter 1? These young uh, Jewish men taken into Babylonian captivity and exile were taken into the schools of Babylon to learn Babylonian ways. So they could, uh, the best and brightest could be leaders in Babylon. And as they're taken into this school to learn the ways of Babylon, they're offered the king's food. The only problem... For them to eat the king's food would violate the dietary law that God had given in the book of Leviticus. And so Daniel and his three friends say, we can't eat that. We, we can't eat that. Just give us vegetables and water and see what happens. And so for ten days, there's a neat connection there. There's, people drew some parallels between the ten days here and ten days there. But for ten days, they ate vegetables and drank water. At the end of the ten days... The, the, the caretaker comes, and they were healthier and more vibrant than the other men that were eating the king's food. Now, that passage is not about the kind of diet we should be on. I've seen books, and, and I, I don't mean to offend you if you're doing that. Vegetables and water are good if you want to eat that. Go for it, all right? I'll, I'll pass you on my way to the barbecue restaurant. Vegetables and water, are, are, they're good for you. I understand that. But that, the purpose of Daniel chapter 1 is not to give us a diet plan to follow. It's a story about compromise. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't compromise. It was a smaller issue, right? But they didn't compromise. And I believe that that steeled them and prepared them for bigger tests. Like the fiery furnace. And the lion's den. You see, if you compromise on the smaller issues, you don't have a chance when the rubber really meets the road. But if you will daily say, I will not compromise. I will live for the name of Jesus. I will serve him. I will love him. I will represent him. I will do the right thing. When you don't make those daily small compromises, you are preparing yourself for the bigger tests that are sure to come. See, when you snap your finger and say, okay, I'm ready to die for Jesus. It's prepared in your life. It's built into your life over time as you refuse to compromise on a daily basis for Jesus. Does that make sense? So prepare. Number two, anticipate. Look in verse 10. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anticipate heavenly reward. If you're faithful in this life, Jesus takes notice of it. He stands up to look at the suffering you're encountering. And he recognizes your walk with him and your strength and courage in following him. And you will be rewarded. Nothing that's ever done for Christ goes unnoticed. Amen? Now, the crown of life, that that phrase crown, would have made a lot of sense to the residents of Smyrna. The the citadel area where the the capital buildings were arranged in Smyrna were arranged like a crown. There's a a famous architectural uh, aspect of that city. And Smyrna hosted some major athletic competitions, kind of like the Olympics. And and when an athlete would win an event, they would put a a crown, a a laurel wreath on their head as a symbol of victory. And Jesus is saying, if you'll be faithful to me, even if it costs you your life, you'll get a crown of victory. You'll be rewarded in heaven, and it will be worth it. When Jesus puts that crown on your head. That's what he's saying. So anticipate. Anticipate that even if if times are hard and life is difficult, anticipate that Jesus is watching you and Jesus will reward you in eternity. And then third, celebrate. Celebrate. Look what it says in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, the word there is Nikon, is where we get the word Nike from. It means to conquer, to be victorious over. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So the true followers of Christ that will not compromise, that stay faithful to Christ, those folks will not be hurt by the second death. Now here's the big question. What in the world is the second death? They went, I thought one death was enough. Well, the first death, refers to one's physical death. And if Jesus tarries, all of us will experience the first death. It's just a matter of when, right? The, 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 the statistics are one out of one die. All of us are, are, are approaching our exit from this earth. Oh, that's the first death. The second death refers to spiritual death, being separated from God forever. As a matter of fact, turn to Revelation chapter 20. You're in Revelation already. Turn to... to Revelation chapter 20, we'll show you what happens on the day of judgment, the great white throne of judgment. Look in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It's after Jesus sits on his throne and judges humanity. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in other words, if you don't know Christ, your name's not in the book of life. If you're not saved by Jesus, your name's not in that book. And if your name's not in that book, you'll be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of all things, and that eternal torment and separation from God is described as the second death. Jesus is saying, The saints may suffer physical death at the hand of persecutors, but they will never be separated from God. They won't experience the second death. I like how Adrian Rogers used to say it. He used to say, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. In other words, if you've been born again, 
You may face physical death, but you won't face eternal separation from God. You won't be thrown into the lake of fire. You will be with him in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. So celebrate. Listen to me. If your name's in the book of life, nothing will ever change that. No matter how hard it gets, if your name's in the book of life, you get heaven even if you die for your faith. Jesus said, I'm the one that was dead and am alive again. I can give you eternal life. It's like Paul said in Philippians 1, he said, to live is Christ. If, if you don't kill me, authorities, I have, I have more days to preach Jesus. But if you do kill me, he says, to die is gain. I get to go and be with Jesus. How do you silence someone like that? You leave them alive, they speak about Jesus. You threaten to kill them, they say, okay, I get to go be with Jesus. You can't intimidate someone like that, can you? And if we understand the precious eternal realities of our faith, we cannot be silenced. Because we know that we have the victory. Let me, let me give it to you like this. A historical example to kind of drive this, this idea home. June 6, 1944, the Allied forces invaded Europe to try to liberate that continent from the stronghold of Nazi Germany. And June 6, 1944 was a, a major operation and a major victory at the cost of many lives. But they uh, were able to take the shorelines and able to enter that, uh, enter that continent and begin to march to Berlin. Now, even though they won that day and made it into Europe, there were still many more months of fighting left, almost a year's left of fighting before Germany would surrender when they made it to Berlin. Now, historians will tell you that D-Day was, was the decisive day of victory. I mean, after that, it was just a matter of time. Once the Allied forces made it onto European soil, it was just a matter of time. They had broken the back of the Nazi war machine. I mean, that was the decisive, mortal blow to the Nazis. But there were still some months to go before there would be VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, where the Germans actually surrendered. I believe that's a great metaphor for what we're experiencing right now as Christians. D-Day has happened. It's called the cross. Jesus died on the cross, and it was a mortal blow to Satan. He is a defeated foe. He, he has no future. He has been defeated because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. He destroyed the power of Satan over our lives, right? It was the mortal blow for Satan. But there's still time on this earth where Satan is unleashed to do his evil. And his days are numbered. And there's coming a day of final surrender. There's coming a day of final victory as God takes his children home to heaven. But in this in-between phase, D-Day and V-E Day, this time we're living in as believers, the cross and the final consummation of all things, there's still some battles to be fought. Satan is going to point all of the artillery of hell at your life to intimidate you and to persecute you, to get you to back away from boldly living for Jesus. He's defeated, but he's still fighting. Jesus says, be courageous in the fight. There are hard times coming but don't you back away from naming the name of Jesus
the first and the last.